Emily Wright and welcome to the next instalment in our series of talks looking ahead to the future, future tech, future innovation, future ideas, future everything and now a practical futurist and we'll hear all about that in a minute because I think that might need a little bit of explanation but I'm joined today by Andrew Grill, Global Managing Partner at IBM, TEDx and keynote speaker and as I mentioned practical futurist. Hello. Emily, hi, how are you? I'm very well. So Practical futurist, what does that mean? It's a deliberate play on words of the futurist because I think a lot of people, a lot of my colleagues, call themselves futurists, nothing wrong with that. But what I find clients uh, come back and say to me is, that's great, the stuff that's going to happen in five or ten years, but I won't be around in this job in five or ten years. What can I do in five or ten weeks or five or ten months? So by putting the word practical at the beginning, it's can you leave the meeting, the conference, the podcast, with something you can actually go and do. And I remember speaking last year to a bunch of financial people, and it was actually the day before Brexit. And so I said, okay, next week, after Brexit, after the hangover, the Monday morning staff meeting, what are you going to say that's different? And they all stood up and went, okay, we've got to think about this. So I like to give people near-term future views. That's a very interesting idea because when we talk about the future, it seems to have been ingrained in people that we mean 10 years in advance. And of course, the future is as futuristic as the next minute, the next second. And what is it that people are looking for from you when they are wondering about the next five weeks, the next five months? Yeah, it ties back to their role or their purpose in life. So if we take a technology like blockchain, how is that going to affect my business? If anything, I help them discover the opportunities. They may have heard about blockchain and Bitcoin. And they may say, well, how does that affect me? But then I understand that they're a wine manufacturer and I explain how a distributed ledger could actually help trace the grape to the table. And they go, oh, wow, I hadn't thought about that. So I like to provide that aha moment. And depending on the group I'm talking to, learn as much as I can about that group, use the, the jargon, the language, and then be a translator. Because I think part of the problem with, with some of the futurists out there, and myself included, we sometimes make it all too fantastic. We're all wearing VR goggles and we're all on hoverboards and everything else. But how does that change the world and change my business outlook? And how does the way you look at the future make you so well positioned to be a futurist? Good question. I try and stay as far ahead of the curve as possible. And so I was playing with Twitter in 2007. I was in LinkedIn in 2004. I had a website back in 1995. I try and play with these things so early that I then reverse engineer work out how it's going to affect business. So I was one of the first of my friends to have a mobile phone. And they all said, Andrew, why have you got a mobile phone? You're such a yuppie. Why are you doing that? Well, I worked out there was a business benefit of having the ability to be contacted anywhere and everywhere. And when I started getting more work and more jobs and people could, they then said, that's actually a really good idea. So what I try and do is, is test and try all this technology and then work out how I could translate that to someone who is wanting to know what happens next week and next year. And are you just incredibly good at getting it right? Or is it more of a scattergun approach and you, you sort of adopt everything and then the stuff that doesn't work falls away and the stuff that becomes a huge success? You stick yeah, with. it's about being across everything and, and the impact of it. So I would never call myself a blockchain expert. I'm not an, a VR expert. I know enough to know how to put a narrative together. And my role at IBM, I'm very fortunate. I often get wheeled into the most senior offices. And so I'm talking to CEO of banks and airlines, and they don't suffer fools. And so they need to understand that, first of all, I get their business pain. I can talk about it in terms that make sense to their business and only then apply a technical lens to say, and I think that might be solved by a blockchain or VR or cognitive computing. 
Um, I think if you go in too early with technology and say, we'll solve your problem with technology X, their eyes glaze over because they don't understand what it is. You've got to lead them to, to that eventual you know, best, best course of action. And so a lot of what you do is advising these big companies, small companies, medium companies in general on, on what to look out for in the future. And that must be a very, very wide spectrum of things that you need to go in and talk to people about because different companies have got different needs, different requirements, different fears about yeah. the future. But I know that there are several things that you, that you really do focus on. And, and the first one of those which I wanted to talk to you about is this idea of disrupt or be disrupted. Yeah. We put out all the examples of disruptors, Uber is mentioned all the time, Airbnb and um, a number of other companies, but we forget that they've actually disrupted themselves. So Netflix was a DVD mailer company that then used streaming to become a content producer. Uber started life as a limo hire service and when Travis and co realised that not a lot of people needed to hire a limo and they could actually take it to the masses, that's when they pivoted. Um, and Airbnb, not many people know that the air in Airbnb stood for air mattress. And their original business model looked at the number of addressable homes in the US that had an air mattress, and they had to pivot. And so we look at those companies that we find are disruptive. We also see that they're coming up to 10 years old, and so they're not overnight successes. And so the nature of disrupt or be disrupted, if we look at the HMVs, the Jessops of the world, they've fallen by the wayside. What really keeps me awake at night is ensuring that companies are seeing where their business models won't survive or need to change, and looking at how they can look at other business models as well. So you actually have to disrupt yourself, you have to cannibalise something of your own in order to get to go forward, otherwise you'll, you'll go by the wayside. And I think the message that I send to, customer, to clients that, that hear that, they then say, you're right, we, we actually need to look at how we break down our business models because this digital stuff isn't going away. And if anything, it's flattening structures and it, you know, the internet's only 10 to 15 years old and some people can't even remember time without it. When it comes to that idea of disrupting from within, mm. Is there, and I'm interested, is there an audible sigh of relief that, oh, oh we, we have to do it, it's not about anybody else, it's about us against us, or, and you know, that kind of elimination of such a fear of competition and being swooped in on, yeah. or is it more, oh God, we're going to have to sort this out ourselves? Well, it comes down to another thing that I talk about a lot, which is digital diversity, and we actually talk about diversity on boards for gender diversity and diversity of thought, and my view is that if you look at a board, a FTSE 100 board, the majority of them don't have people that see the business through a business lens. And people like yourself and myself, and there are probably 100 people I could think of right now in London that could actually sit on a board, even if they didn't have a digital lens. But by being on that board, they're then able to see the company through what's happening digitally. What pains me is I hear of companies from around the world that go off on a study trip to the west coast of California, and they look at Google and Twitter and Facebook, and they come back really energised, and the next board meeting, it's all the same. And so unless you actually have people on the board, on senior management, that are asking the tough questions, I'll give you an example. Proposal comes to the board to spend $5 million on a new cloud platform. An uneducated, non-digital board says, what do we need that for? An educated board member who sees things through a digital lens says, is that hybrid or public cloud? Uh, what servers are being used? What's the encryption? They ask the questions that they know to ask. And so I think with anything, if you're going to be disrupted, it actually needs to come from the top, where the top realises that unless they do something, someone else is going to come in that doesn't have a business model that's tied to the old ways, and they'll actually undercut them and, and they'll go out of business. Is it fair to say that the definition of it coming from the top means it's quite difficult because people at the top are still potentially of a different generation or different era? Yeah. I think if we look at this in five or ten years' time, the landscape will change generationally because 
The millennials that are coming up through the ranks will be in senior management positions. They will have a different level of education. I think also we're looking at hybrid models where the chief digital officer and even ones I talk to are saying, my role won't be in here three, in three years' time. I'm a hybrid. I'm giving the CMO some technical knowledge. I'm giving the CIO some marketing knowledge. But as we churn out new graduates, they'll have those inbuilt skills. And so I think you'll see a very different composition. And what I'm being told, I, my soapbox is this digital diversity. And everyone says, Andrew, that's a fantastic idea. But our board tenure is still three years out. We can't roll the directors off. Why? Why not put two more people on the board that have a digital background? That certainly makes a lot of sense. I wonder whether there needs to be that desire from the existing incumbents to bring those people on and to learn from yeah. them. And I suppose that very much depends on a person-by-person, individual-by-individual basis. Some it's, people it, are very open to that and some people find it very scary. It can be cultural as well because they're, they're you know, two or three years away from retirement uh, or, or another job, so why rock the boat? I think the smart ones realise that, just as I've seen in startups, and I, I've, I've run, you know, six startups in 12 years, when the founder realises that it's time to move on and get a professional CEO on board is a really smart move. That doesn't mean they leave the business. It means that they actually say, okay, we're now at a different stage. We're at a different level of maturity. We need to get you know, the adult supervision like what happened with Google. And moving on to another one of the points that you feel very strongly about and that you discuss a lot, um, and that's the workplace of the future. Mm. Why is that so relevant? I think if you look around any office, you see people heads down at a computer and they're not talking to each other. I work in an organisation that's global, it has hundreds of thousands of people around the world, and someone knows something about someone. And so I found myself in amazing meetings around the world only because someone used our internal collaboration network to find an expert in this particular field. Or I needed uh, a PowerPoint that I just needed to, to push a, a point with a client, and someone in Singapore had that. And so what I'm seeing in my own organisation is when you start to collaborate, there's a real energy behind that. The story is that in the future, your value to an organisation won't be what you know, it'll be what you share. I think many people listening to podcasts will say, well, that's like us, we don't really share. Or we might have started using Slack or Chatter or those sorts of things. The challenge then is, technology aside, it's a cultural change. And so where millennials come into an organisation and automatically want to share because they do that in their private life, you'll find people that are more mature are going, well, I don't want to give away my power base. That The information I have is power. And so the workplace of the future, I think, will be driven by technology. But there will be a massive cultural change moving from hoarding information to sharing it. And it will go further than that. It will happen in government as well you'll crowdsource an idea that is with maybe with a competitor or maybe with a community that's outside your organisation and you can spin up a collaboration platform to do that and then spin it down again and get, get help and ideas from everyone. I think that we, we've, we've touched on digital diversity earlier. Um, so if there's, if there's one other key point that you would raise that everybody really needs to be aware of or that you go into businesses with, what, what would that be? I think it's, the thing I say a lot is that in order to get digital, you need to be digital. And by that I mean you need to play with the technology to understand the business use. So if someone is out there, and I've mentioned a few terminologies, I've mentioned Bitcoin, I've mentioned blockchain, we look at cognitive computing, it's very easy to actually just start learning about those sort of things. And then when you know enough, you then can apply um, how it might affect your business. And so when I started looking at blockchain, I thought it was just about Bitcoin and about currency. And then I learned about how it could be used for wine trading and for smart contracts and those sort of things. And so I think... You need to start playing with that. And when I look around organisations and I see that they're not really testing these technologies, even in a basic way, they can't possibly learn. Uh, I know you've had um, the editor of Wired on before, and magazines like that are great because it really shows you what's going on. But I think back to my 
practical futurist hat. You need to try it to understand it. And so I'd encourage people out there um, to do simple things to learn more about these technologies because your competitors are going to be talking about it. Candidates for your organisation are going to want to know whether you're actually going to enable some of these technologies. You talked a little bit about companies going out to the West Coast mm. and being all inspired and coming back at the next board meeting, it's all the same. So that's kind of in the same vein as, as the question I'm going to ask, which is, what would you say is the biggest mistake that, that people make in the, in the quest for you know, being more digital and technologically advanced and looking to that future, whether it's five weeks, five months, or, in, or indeed five years? They, don't, they stay the same, and they don't take uh, counsel from lots of people. I, I mentioned diversity. You need to embrace diversity of thought. The best idea might come from the youngest person in the organisation and vice versa. So I think when you actually embrace the need and the want for diversity of thought around any organisation, you can, you can bring out the best. I've seen organisations fail because they just stay the same. There are so many examples of smaller companies without the, 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 uh, the problems and the structures there. The, the DNA of a startup is just so different. And because I've spent time, I spent 12 years in startups, I think like a startup. And when I moved into IBM, people said, how are you going to survive? Because that's a very old organisation. I'm glad that the part of IBM I joined is much like a startup, and it embraces that sort of thinking, an agile way of doing things. I think if more companies could embrace that diversity of thought and an agile way of thinking and, and you know, crowdsourcing ideas, they could be much more competitive. But they need, they need to get outside their own comfort zone. Uh, I go to events that I wouldn't normally attend, and I learn things about all sorts of things. And so by staying current and reading widely, you can actually stay ahead of the curve. What kind of events do you go to, Ask Interest? So if, if anyone was listening in and they were thinking, oh, that's interesting, what should I be going to? I went to one the other day that was completely out of my, uh, my field. It was, a, it was, about, um, it was a, a legal event about, about contracts. And I'm not sure quite why I went or why I was invited, but uh, I find sometimes that going to, I wouldn't say random events, but ones that are outside your... Uh, field of influence can be very, very uh, educational. And you meet the most amazing people. I'm a big believer in this thing called social serendipity. Um, those of you that are listening that know me know my one tweet story. The 15th of January 2011, I was flying from Seattle to San Francisco. I tweeted simply, arrive San Francisco. I can trace my role at IBM to that one tweet. And so I'm a big believer in actually being out there and open to possibilities and well, using so it said, sorry, it said, arrive San Francisco. So I arrived San Francisco, and another Australian who I'd never met saw my tweet, said, let's catch up. We had lunch. He introduced me to uh, the founder of a company called Cred that I ran for a while, a social media influence. And 18 months into that role, IBM saw what I was doing. And so that one tweet led to a series of events to get me to that, to that role. And it sounds very simplistic, but it's, again, playing on that, that notion of serendipity. And now that you've got social networks around the world... I can send out a tweet in any city in the world that I'm visiting and I'll know someone will be there and be able to you know, interact with them. In terms of how companies adopt change and embrace technology, is it very much a company-by-company company issue or would you say there are whole sectors that are moving at a different speed? There are, and some of it's driven by regulation and some of it is hindered by regulation. So this whole notion of collaboration that I'm a strong component of if I talk to my colleagues in the US in the banking industry, they're saying that would never work because we are so heavily regulated. Everything we say or do can be recorded and so we wouldn't do that. I think it's, it's the fear factor that stops people doing this sometimes. The maturity of an organisation, um, if you've got a very young, dynamic organisation, naturally they'll lend itself to sharing ideas and testing new things. If you've got a lot of an older organisation... But I think our organisation is great in that we have people we call wild ducks and I'm a wild duck especially coming from, from startup into a large organisation. And you need to embrace them. And you need to realise that these wild ducks, when they're set out there, and I'll flap their arms a lot and they'll squawk, 
But sometimes they have amazing ideas that spurn other things. And so um, I think... Have never come across a wild duck with an amazing idea? <laughs> well, you, you're sitting in front of one. Oh, I mean, we, we have lots of, lots of ideas, but I think uh, it, it is because there's a new way of thinking. And, and I think the whole startup culture, I'm glad I spent time in a startup or many startups because you have to learn very quickly to do something with nothing. And you have to be able to promote what you're doing from a very, very low base. And it really, it, it makes you think. It, it's the survival of the fittest. And I see startups being so successful because they forget the rules. They just plough on. I'm not suggesting for a moment you ignore the rules. The other thing I think also, back to your point, is that sometimes in regulated markets, the market can help to educate the regulator. So years ago in Australia, I was doing some work with a bank down there. And they said, look, if someone tweets us, legally we have to open up a ticket and a case number and everything else, which is impossible. If the market had taken time to educate the regulator, this is just not possible, then that might happen. What's happened here in the UK is the UK government, I think back in 2014, said we want to have an open banking system. We're going to force the banks to be open and have open APIs. That'll happen this year and next year. I'm just wondering if the banks had thought of that earlier, that it may be a different situation. So in that case, you've got whole industries that need to move together because they're regulated, I think the opportunities sometimes are to move ahead of the regulator or educate the regulators. This is putting you on the spot a bit, but in your opinion, is there a sector at the moment which is really ripe for disruption or, or is, is like really leading? I mean, five years ago, maybe it was fintech and the financial services sector. Yeah. What's, what's the next fintech? So I'm sitting in an office surrounded by media types, property types. Uh, back in 2001, one thing you don't know is I was actually quoted in the States Gazette because I had launched a property website called Property Look, which was a joint venture between the four big commercial property companies in Australia. And back then, it was very hard to convince um, estate agents to advertise on there. I think what we'll see in the property industry is that the role of the intermediaries, that be the agents, will decrease because you can actually let or sell your house online. And I think when things like blockchain really come into their own and you have smart contracts, it'll be almost automatic. So I think if you look at an organisation where you've got a large number of people, there will be opportunities to remove the lower skill tasks and upskill people. Uh, and so property is one area. Financial transactions. Why does it take three days to clear money between banks? It should take a minimum of 10 minutes using blockchain. So I think there's rights there as well. But there are all sorts of things happening out there. I think the telco industry is at a watershed because they've invested billions and billions of pounds in building their networks, and basically they're now just a data pipe. And so I think there are all sorts of organisations that, that are looking to, to, you know, to change, to adapt. You mentioned property there, and you mentioned the residential side. What about the commercial side of property? I mean, we're certainly seeing an awful lot of exciting mm. things happening in that sector. Is that yeah. something you're noticing as well? Yeah, and I think while the assets stay the same because they're, they're physical and they're in the ground, how you transact that, I think you'll also see, and uh, we saw this at the uh, Tomorrow Talks, the notion of space that you can rent uh, like an Uber model space. And we may find that empty space is able to be rented out on a more, uh, more flexible basis, those sorts of things. As you have people that are working for themselves in this gig economy, they need somewhere to touch down and do things, you may find that the office of the future is a very dynamic office and you actually have like the WeWorks and those sort of service offices, that sort of concept spreading out and maybe your organisation will have people that don't work for you in the same space because you have common interests. I think that's interesting as well. And if there's one message that you'd leave people with today or, or you know, Imagine if you're finishing off one of your TEDx talks, how would you put that to people in terms of inspiring them about the future and, again, that five-week, five-month idea? Disrupt before you get disrupted. There you go. You've heard it here. Take heed. Thank you so much for joining me today, Andrew. Good to talk to you.